Welcome to this week's episode. In this one, I have a conversation with professional stuntman Peter Wallach. Peter jokes that he kind of fell into being a stuntman. After pursuing a number of different majors in college, he eventually decided to focus on technical theater at the University of Alaska Anchorage. There, a mentor suggested that he become a stuntman. Not giving it too much thought, Peter went on with his life. It wasn't until he was almost hit by a truck while biking to work did he really start to consider it. He realized that, despite falling face first into a curb, he innately knew how to fall in a way that protected his body. Today, working as a professional stuntman, Peter believes that you have to fully commit to an action. He says that you can't do half a flip. You can only do a whole flip or no flip at all. Here's where I give the company men a shout out. These are the people who have subscribed to the Crude Patreon for $50 or more. Trina Duber, Seward Brewing Company, The Grind Coffee Shop in Juneau, Derek Adolph, Blue and Gold Board Shop, Sharon Liska, Alaska Surf Adventure, and Aquila Space. Thank you to all the Patreon subscribers. This podcast wouldn't be possible without you. If you subscribe to the Crude Magazine Patreon, thank you. Your money helps keep these conversations going. So if you enjoy these conversations, you can subscribe at www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. That's patreon.com slash crude magazine. And pick the subscription tier that works for you. Okay, back to Peter Wallach. Peter grew up in a family of explorers who pushed the limits of what it means to adventure. His mom, Tandy, founded Circumpolar Expeditions, a business that curates and leads personal adventures in the Arctic. Peter's first tour was at eight years old. He walked a group of Russian dancers all over downtown Anchorage and set them up with a Russian translator. A more recent adventure that Peter points to happened in 2016 and involved reuniting a family that had been separated since the Cold War. So here he is, Peter Wallach. <laughs> this red light right here, it means we're recording. Okay, fired up. Crude conversations. Listen more than you talk. Go to work! You just got into Anchorage this morning at what, 4.10? Yep, 4.10 a.m. And here you are on the podcast. It's about 11.30, but we kind of had a podcast before the podcast. <laughs> a little conversation. <laughs> had some breakfast. How are you feeling? Are you tired? No, I'm feeling really good. Yeah. It's always nice to be back home. So uh, I talked to our mutual friend, Whitney Branshaw, yesterday to get a few background details on you. And one thing she told me is that your friends call you Waldo. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is there a story behind that or is it just an abbreviated version of your last name? It, it basically comes from an abbreviated version of my last name. Yeah. Wallach, Waldo. Um, yeah, and I had that. I mean, I had that for so long that people didn't even know my real name. Really? Yeah, they just knew <laughs> Waldo. I, I remember doing a play 
in Anchorage and uh, one of the reporters who was, it, you know, was doing a report on it, uh, a review, uh, called up my friend Rodney and was like, hey, Rodney, what's, what's Waldo's last name? <laughs> like, I need it for the, you know, for the newspaper article. Yeah. He goes, well, if you're going to use his last name, do you want his real first name? <laughs> <laughs> and, they, and they were like, they were so mad. They were like, they were like I'm not even going to put him in this, in, in this uh, review anymore. <laughs> they were so mad that it just said Waldo in the, in the program. That's awesome. Yeah. As we were talking earlier, that kind of pre-podcast, podcast slash like breakfast just now. You had mentioned a story about Buddha, uh, Buddhists that, that I liked a lot about kind of contributing to, was it a society or was it kind of like, like kind of your inner being? Yeah. It's for your community. They talked about being of value within your community. And so his monks would go out into the, into the world and, and, you know, preach their spiritual perspective and uh, their understanding of morals and then they would have their begging bowl and they weren't allowed to keep extra money um you had to spend your money every day every day you had to go out and get new money um and beg for more of it and they asked him hey why you know why can't i just save money he says uh you have to go out every day and be of good and use to your community every day so that they'll support you. If you're allowed to save money, then you could be good one day and then not be good the other day. Mm -hmm. uh, and and I, I feel like uh, art is that way in that every time you need to go out and be, you know, contributing to the community and then your community should be feeding you based on your, on what you're providing to the community in your artistic fashion. I like that. It's the concept of staying hungry. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think that when you lose that hunger, you become complacent. Absolutely. So we talked on the phone a couple months back. And from that conversation, in addition to my Google and telephone a friend research, I realized that there's a lot to you as a person. So you're an intellectual. You read like three books at a time. You were a recon Marine, correct? Mm -hmm. At one point your guide for your family's adventure business. Mm -hmm. And that adventure business is here in Alaska, right? Yep. And on top of all that, you're a professional stuntman. Yep. So maybe let's start with how you became a stuntman and then connect or try to connect all those other attributes along the way. How does that sound? Okay. <laughs> um, well, I became a stuntman out of really going to school and not knowing what I wanted to do. And um, uh, I just sort of like stumbled through, you know, all right, trying to do some sciences and trying to do some history and then started doing technical theater uh, at UAA um, a lot more. And you kind of had to be real well-rounded mm -hmm. uh, in performance and tech. Uh, and throughout doing lighting design and working on the tech side and doing some movement-based stuff, um, uh, a mentor uh, suggested that I should be a stuntman. And I thought that was the dumbest idea I'd ever heard. <laughs> um, 
and I was riding my bike to work um, uh, at the trains uh, down in Ship Creek. And uh, I almost got hit by a truck in the morning and got kind of run off the road and went face first into a curb. And I was totally fine and my bike was all busted. And so I spent the next 12 to 16 hours on a train thinking about like, okay, like maybe I should go try and be a stunt man. <laughs> and so um, I started to do some research on what kind of skills I would need. And then I put in a little business proposal so that after I graduated, I borrowed a little bit of money to go get myself some training. And then I moved to where stunts could, could happen because mm -hmm. there's not a lot up here. So is it safe to say that being hit by a car on your way to Ship Creek was your first stunt? Oh, I mean, it, sadly, that car didn't actually hit me. It just got close enough that I just, you know, got okay. pushed off. And they drove off, didn't even, probably didn't even know I fell. Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of where it started. Before that, I, you know, I thought it was a pie in the sky ridiculous thing. Like, who's the stuntman? Yeah. Like. Nobody's a stuff, man. So this wasn't like an aspiration from like childhood. No, there's a lot of guys that I know that they grow up and that's what they want to be. And uh, I sort of, you know, pun intended, fell into it. Yeah. You spent some time in community theater, right? Here or technical theater, you said. Mm -hmm. What was that like? Were you trying to be an actor? I think I was just okay with performing and being in front of people. Um I really like the process. Uh, a really good friend of mine uh, who's an actor as well, he, he said at one point, he's like, if you don't like rehearsing, then you don't like being an actor. Huh. Uh, and I kind of feel the same way about a lot of stuff. You know, if, if you don't like doing drills, you probably don't like being a basketball player. Yeah. You know, like you have to like... Um, the work side of that. And I loved spending time in the theater and thinking about how to convey these storylines through light or through um, props or an effect um, or how you can contribute, you know, with your what's in your wheelhouse, right? Like I don't get to make the whole story, but I get to make the lighting. Mm -hmm. So what can I do to make that lighting or for stunts, this stunt, explain this story better? And like, that sounds exciting to me. That's yeah. fun. And it's a collaborative effort, right? Like before we got in here, we were talking about where um, you were telling me about all of the different variables and jobs that go into a production. Absolutely. It's a very different art form in that it's entirely collaborative um, with, not that there's nobody in charge, but the, the mechanisms that get people to operate and, and to get things done and to push us in a direction mm -hmm. are, are, are a collaborative process and everybody has their own goals. And it's through achieving your goal that you have somebody kind of guiding you in a direction, which is like your technical director or your artistic director or your director or line producer, like we were talking about. Yeah. And so it's always working with other people. Um, and that's, I mean, that's really the art form. It's a community. 
Uh, well, of course. Yeah, it's a real small community. Uh, you know, in the same way up here, you know, you kind of run into the same people in the same uh, venues. It's just a different different pond. Yeah. So you're doing technical theater here mm -hmm. in Alaska at a certain point. How did you get to where you are now? Oh, wow. Well, um, so I got my degree and then I moved over to New York. Uh, I, and I chose New York over LA because I wanted to ride my bicycle. Uh, I got rid of my car years before and I would ride my bike year round. And I was like, okay, I'm going to keep doing that. And I don't want to buy a car in LA. So I'm going to go to New York and do that. Mm -hmm. And when I got to New York, I just kept my expenses unbelievably low. I tried to have as little expenses as possible, find free entertainment, all that sort of stuff. And then you hustle and sell your skills. So I knew that I could do lighting design and that I have some leadership skills and basic carpentry skills. And so I tried to go work at the, um, the local technical theater in New York, local one, uh, very difficult to get into. Um, I applied to different um, schools and theaters. Uh, and eventually I uh, became a technical director for the New York Fringe. And there's a, a young, a school for young people called Children's Aid Society in Soho. And so I was um, a lighting designer for them and a technical director while their technical director was uh, gone on sabbatical. Mm -hmm. And I was helping them put up plays. And while that's happening, I'm trying to find a way to get into the union, and which is a process in and of itself. Yeah. Um, and so I'm going out on auditions, going out on jobs, and uh, you know, over time, you kind of worked my way into the spheres. Like you said, it's these are all communities, mm -hmm. and so even though I'm not doing stunts, can I work? in the theater with the stage combat people because they probably have something to do with stunts mm -hmm. in some way. Okay, I'm getting on sets. Okay, can I do background or can I do stand-in work so that I can get near a stunt coordinator? And so it took me uh, about a year, year and a half, and uh, I got my union card working on a movie um, with the help of another Alaskan. What was the movie? Uh, it was a low-budget movie. At the time, it was called arrested development but it wasn't the arrested development that we all know that we think is hysterical yeah uh, but they had the they had had the rights before that so they still had this I, I don't think this movie ever actually came out but this is another one of those you know know your business that you're in yeah. and they had me say a line but didn't mic me <laughs> and so that technically isn't supposed to be uh, union work, but because they directed me, it's union work. And so that's how I got into the union. Mm -hmm. uh, and I wouldn't have known that if my friend Aurora Warfield, who is an Alaskan who also went to Stellar, yeah. um, who worked uh, as an AD for lots of movies, she um, she talked to me about, oh, this is, this is the business and this is the, the rules and the process that they're going through. And I got into the union from there. Yeah. Uh, and then once I was in the union, 
I got a job being a body double and a stand-in for Matt Bomer on a TV show called White Collar. And I hustled every single stunt person that came on that set. I was there five days a week. It was a really sweet job. Um, I called it the velvet rut. It was very comfortable, but like once you're there, you're probably not going to get out of it. Uh, and so I worked there for uh, five seasons. And um, was that the only thing you were doing at that time? For the most part, yeah. I, I would get time off if I got stunt work so that they would give me the day off. Mm -hmm. um, and then I would work on that uh, for the full season. And then I would come back to Alaska and I would do community theater or I would work for the family company. Um, I worked for uh, Anchorage Opera for a while. Uh, I would, you know, come back, find odd jobs, try and stay relevant in art. I would go and you know, practice something that I thought would make me a better stuntman, whether that be doing a martial art or learning a new skill like scuba diving or um, trying to understand, you know, accounting so that I can keep track of my own stuff and save me some yeah. money. Very yeah. self-sufficient. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as an artist, you're your own business. Yeah. How long did it take you to figure that out? About to figure which out. That you're, you're your own business and that you need to keep track of, of everything, uh, your expenses. Well, I, I'm really lucky in that both of my parents own their own business. Okay. So, um, and because they were their own bosses and their own business people, I, I grew up with like a, a master's degree in business because I'm watching them and understanding how they work. And it was incredibly frustrating growing up as a kid trying to understand all this stuff mm -hmm. like where are you getting these figures oh we're just making it up and it was like so frustrating <laughs> and now i realize like oh yeah you just kind of make it up and and you figure out what's reasonable and that nobody really has the answers yeah but I, I, so it was always kind of floating there but it it really starts to hit home once you start making a career of it right like mm -hmm. nobody cares about their expenses until they have a a little bit of extra money and they need to figure out where to put it. Yeah. So, you know, before then it's just pay whatever bills first. Oh, now you have some expenses that you can deduct. Okay. How do I showcase that so that the IRS isn't mad at you? Do you remember that moment when you actually had some expendable cash? You said that you're working or you're, you're living kind of on a shoestring budget at this point in New York. Um, the time that I recognized like, oh, this is, this is how this is operating. And like, this is really eye opening for me was one year I did my taxes myself. It took me months. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm doing my own deductions. I'm trying to use TurboTax. I'm trying to figure this out. And in the end, I think that, you know, oh, we don't think this is right. You owe us X dollars more. And I was like, oh, I don't have this money. What's going on? You know, I, I have a little bit of extra savings that I'm making, but it's not a lot. And then a woman that I was dating at the time, she had started her own business. She had a tax attorney. And I didn't think I had the money, but I, I asked him, hey, can you do my taxes for me? How much would it cost? I think it was $500. And I was like, oh my God, $500? I don't have that, five, that kind of money. Mm-hmm. 
And then I asked what he would need for me to hire him and how long would it take? It was like a 10th of the work that I was doing. It would take me a fifth of the time to prepare it. And he's going to have it done in a month. And this is the tax guy. This is the tax guy. Okay. This is his expertise. Yeah. Yeah. And then I hired him to do it and he... He saved more money. He paid for himself and what he saved me. Mm -hmm. And more than that, I realized like, oh, oh, dude, you're, you know, you're a performer. You're a stuntman. Yeah. Like, you're not a tax guy. Like, hire a tax guy to do that for you. He's going to do it a lot better. Totally. I mean, this gets back to um, what we were talking about on set, right? Where you have all of these people with these these separate jobs and you allocate that job yeah. to that person because they know how to do that job. Yeah. And they'll do it better, uh, faster and more efficient. Yeah. And there's better things to do with my time, right? Like I could go work on being a stuntman. Totally. I mean, like you have a job. Yeah. You know how to do that. Yeah. The tax guy's not going to be the stunt guy. Absolutely. But <laughs> most people with um, regular jobs where they're an employee, well, they go to an office and yeah. then they punch a clock and somebody else deals with the accounting of that. Okay. And then they hand you a paycheck. Uh, and then- you know, they're doing all the reports to bureaucracies and government and you don't have to worry about any of that. Yeah. Well, you run crude conversations. Like, <laughs> you have to keep track of your time and what you spend your money on and keep your receipts. Like there's no accounting office. Totally. Yeah. yeah. And, and like yourself, I grew up with a family that owned a business. Uh, my mom was was kind of the business person. You know, she knew how to do the taxes and this and that. And so by watching her, I think one of the most important things that I learned from her is persistence and patience. You know, those things are are extremely important, I think, in the arts, you know, because things don't just happen. You know, we're sitting here talking about your story because it's a story worth telling, but it didn't just happen overnight. No, it's, um, yeah, it, it's... It's your profession, so you got to work at it, right? And it's, um, as an artist, you're an artist, I'm an artist, uh, we, it sort of just comes out of it. We're all artists. Mm -hmm. When we're walking down the street and we do a silly walk or when we tell a story and we, you know, fake our friend's voice or our friend's mannerisms, these are all, you know, even just picking the color you paint your room. Yeah. These are all art that just comes out of you, Um we have to work on these to um, to make a career out of it that's that's more than just going to uh, a standard job. We need to uh, curate our art to make it useful to somebody else, mm -hmm. uh, whether it be aesthetically or, or things like that. And that's that's something that you really have to work at. It, it's not just pouring out of you. It uh, you need to. Um, focus it as it comes out of you into into something. You know, I just finished this book called Sapiens mm -hmm. um, about the cognitive revolution. In are you familiar with it? I'm familiar with the book. I haven't read it. So um, one thing that is a maybe not a theme throughout the book, but a theme in the very beginning of the book is why we created language, right? Why Homo sapiens created language, and uh, the author says one of the prevailing theories is that we created language to gossip, 
right? So like after we were done hunting and gathering, we would come back to the cave or, you know, wherever, and we would talk about our day, right? We would talk about the people around us, right? And, and so that to me seems like one of the first forms of art, right? Then you have the cave paintings and all that, right? Like that, that's a little bit more like literal art. Uh, but as far as like conversation and like you were talking about, you know, um, trying to affect, affect your friend's voice, you know, like making kind of making fun of them and normal kind of ribbing conversation. It's interesting to know that that type of thing has been happening since like the dawn of humans. Oh yeah. It, and it's, it's all around you. Yeah. And yeah. it continues, right? Of course. And it, uh, and it's through more mediums than just our words, right? So for the most part, to bring this back to stunts, like for the most part, my communication in my job doesn't have a lot of words. It's a, a, most of it is movement and perception. Mm -hmm. um, and there'll be like little subtle things that'll give an indication um, that completely changes the context. Uh, and that's, I mean, that's, that's what's so exciting about it and why it's so universal. So, you know, we know, oh, that guy's, that guy's aggressive and that guy's scared, mm -hmm. not because of what they're saying, but because, you know, that guy's shoulders back and he's like propped up nice and tall yeah. and he's, you know, coming in with forward movement from his center and the person he's coming to is looking down with their chin down and you know kind of slowly backing away or at least their energy or their center is on their heels like oh okay like we're telling a story from that i felt like you were starting to describe me there for a second no, at me. Oh, no no <laughs> i mean i'm <laughs> thinking about it in my head like okay. how would i do that um i was like am i scared Are no no you're not language? scared at all <laughs> so i have this written down um I'm not sure if it necessarily goes here, but uh, I thought it was super interesting. It is from our phone conversation that we had a couple months ago. Mm -hmm. And on that phone conversation, you told me that being a stuntman ruined nature documentaries for you. <laughs> what did you mean by that? Um, being a stuntman uh, and working in film and television, you get to see the seams of things in, in the same way that us Alaskans watch any of the Alaskan shows and you're like, oh, that's, that's totally bullshit. Yeah. Like we know we can spot it real quick. Yeah. Um, I notice the biggest thing, at least with nature shows is edits and sets. So if you're looking at a creature that is, you know, sitting on a leaf and then an owl comes out and snatches it and it's really close to it it's probably a set really they they have probably set this you know feed creature whatever like oh we put this mouse here or we put this bug here um for the other animal to eat it and they'll set it up in a studio and then they'll zoom in on it so they got that crisp beautiful image and then they just wait until that other creature comes and gets it. Hold on, you just said studio. So they're they're bringing these animals into it. It's not out in nature. I mean, I don't always know, but you can usually tell pretty much if it's if it's an animal that you could kind of keep in a cage 
and and it's super close up they've probably put it into a studio yeah um but that because one because it's easier right like the big thing is it's it's shown me how difficult is it to shoot and what would it cost to do that for sure so if i need to find an owl catch a mouse is it going to be easier to have a pay a film crew to to go find a wild field mouse and then to follow it for four or five days and monitor it and like let's hope that an owl gets it while we're watching <laughs> yeah. it or would it be easier to buy a mouse from the from the pet store go down to joanne's and get a bunch of like fake trees and stuff and put some grass down or astroturf or oh my god so it's completely manufactured i mean it's about what's cost effective yeah and what's easy to do so and then you can go to the alaska zoo and get one of the owls that they have there that is for one of their teaching training things and okay we'll bring this owl in and we'll put that mouse there and then we'll be able to like zoom in on that yeah you know how do they get these time lapse of flowers opening you know more than likely that's probably in some controlled environment in some in some case the other thing i notice is you know i th i think about planet earth and in planet earth they had this great scene where there's these muskox and they're you know in the tundra doing you know living their muskox life and <laughs> oh my gosh now there's a wolf and we're gonna follow this wolf and it's you know oh my god it's hunting the baby muskox and there's you know and the blizzard's coming and all these things but they keep cutting between the two but you never see them in the same frame yeah i know the scene you're talking about yeah those those animals have never seen each other before in their life but I, it gave I, the impression that there was course, a hunt happening they wrote a storyline around the edit right yeah um i you know there's a lot if it's not in the frame then it, then it didn't happen but if it is in the frame, then it also might be manufactured. Well, yes. So you can you can stage up what's in the frame and you can put things around it that give the right impressions. You know, which is why, you know, we buy that, you know, that the car is moving because we see it bouncing. Mm -hmm. Well, that car's not moving. Yeah. I mean that more than likely is some grip and electrician like sitting on the bumper, <laughs> just kind of bobbing up and down, checking, you know, playing Bejeweled or checking Tinder on set while, you know, the actors are doing a scene in the car. So when you are watching a nature show, what signals uh, authenticity to you? Um, the creatures that are interacting, um, both being in frame together uh, and at a focal length that gives you perspective, right? So, you know, planet Earth had that great shot of the wolf uh, going after the caribou. And they, they, they did the three mile hunt on that, right? Yeah. Well, you knew that was amazing, not only because they highlighted it like crazy, yeah. because it's real, just like they did with the snow leopard stuff. Which, or the shark that got the seal. Or the shark that got the seal. Oh man, we, we actually got what we usually pretend that we get. Yeah. And so they, they replay it at, at nauseum, highlighting different sections, recutting into it over and over and over. Different um, angles. Yeah, whatever they whatever they got, yeah. um, it's usually not perfect, right? It's not unbelievably crisp video, and it 
doesn't have all the details that you would want. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's at that distance where I can see the landscape. I can see the landscape is in a set and I see the animals actually interacting on screen. You know, taking that and applying it to movies, how do you watch movies if you can, you can see all the cuts, you can see all the imperfections? Um, how, how do you enjoy stuff? <laughs> <laughs> well, h- how do you like reading newspaper articles, right? Like you see all the tropes that are being used and, you know, especially if you're following somebody like, well, I'm, you know, there's that alliteration that, you know. Yeah. That, that that clickbait. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, I, I, you get to see the seams of everybody's, you know, everybody's craft. Yeah. Um, I hope they do a good enough job that I, you know, I suspend my disbelief. But if, you know, if you don't have a good storyline and you're not telling, you know, if what you have to say isn't super strong, then I'm going to start looking at other things. Right when you got here, when I was setting up the equipment, we were talking about Soderbergh, mm-hmm. uh, director, yeah, Steven Soderbergh, and you were talking about just his his techniques, um, the way that he tells stories, how he is kind of he's there, he's integral to the entire process. Oh, yeah. Am I am I getting this correct? Absolutely. Are you able to? You're able to watch one of those movies and and appreciate it for what it is. I mean, he he's pretty much like no frills. You know, it's not like a Transformer movie. One of his. Yeah. Well, the things that make that am- his stuff amazing, it's sort of like Penn and Teller magic, right? Mm-hmm. Like what makes it amazing is that you is you kind of know the technical backflips that he's doing that don't appear to be there. Soderbergh is amazing because he did his own editing. He did his own camera work. He did his own directing. You know, he's working on his own sound and he's able to get all of these shots at once where most people need the team. He is the team because of how long he's been doing it. And he's, he works so much faster Mm -hmm. than everybody else. Uh, and that's where it's like, oh man. But if you were to watch the movie, you may not catch that, you know. Effortless. Did you see uh, 1917? I have not yet, no. So 1917 is is really amazing and it's good. And I discuss it a lot with the other stunt guys and we very much enjoy it for the same reason that the public enjoys it, but not for the same reason. Everybody thinks it's amazing. Oh, it's one shot. Well, we know that it's not one shot. I mean, it had a, you know, 20 day shooting schedule. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> it's not one stop shot. Stop recording at one point. Of course, but it looks like it's one shot. Okay. So it's a gimmick. I mean, that's that's the gimmick of that movie. Yeah, well, two things. One, it's uh, based on a true story. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other gimmick is, oh, it's this one right? Yeah. Like uh, that they could shoot. The thing that nobody or that I think few people outside of the industry will recognize, if you look online, you can see them filming certain shots of it and you can see how they have orchestrated the, the ballet of, of departments to work around this camera. So the only thing that's important in film is what gets seen in the map box. So what's in your camera, what's in your lens, that's what's important. So to have 200, 300 people to do a three minute 
scene all in one take mm -hmm. where you're going to be traveling 200 yards and you're going to have to change camera angles and focal lengths and have special effects and stunts and extras and lighting and well, how do they hide the boom op? Mm -hmm. Where do they put that mic? That's where us as stunt performers are like this is amazing. and people in the industry find that so technically amazing. Uh, and to see that seamlessly go, that's where I'm getting my enjoyment out of it. And I feel like from most people I've talked to who have really enjoyed that movie, they're enjoying the story. I'm enjoying the story as well. Mm -hmm. But in the moment, I'm like, wow, like they just did two, three, 60 degree shots and I didn't see anything. Yeah. I, all I saw was their story. And that's, you know, that's an amazing technical feat. Yeah. Yeah. It's like when architects, you know, builders go to a house and they're like, man, those soffits look really good. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That, totally. That's really hiding, you know, hiding their radiant flooring yeah. really well. I feel like I want to ask you what other movies get you jazzed on like stunts or even just technical stuff like 1917? The things that I get most jazzed on now, there is some technical aspects of stunts that I really like. Uh, and then I've been able to take part in or watch, but what really gets me excited is, you know, when it serves the story, right? When everything's mm -hmm. pulling in the right direction and seeing those smart choices being made. One of my pet peeves about movies is, uh, sex scenes, you know, when they don't serve the purpose of the story, right? I don't care if it's gratuitous or if it's you know, like this soft core, whatever sex scene, if it is detracting from like the real issue of the storytelling, I, I think it's garbage. Yeah, absolutely. Are you doing it just for the sake of doing it? Yeah. Right. And there's some, you know, know your, know what you're trying to convey. You know, Tom Cruise did not need to be on the outside of an airplane for a movie. <laughs> But Mission Impossible movies are about that. Yeah, yeah, totally. Right? It's a and so that's absolutely serving that purpose. Yeah, you know, Hunt for Red October doesn't need a an underwater like crazy action scene. No, no, no. That's a suspense movie. So we, you know, we don't need that kind of stuff. In in the same way that like Hitchcock was really good at that. What does the audience need to know? Okay, there's violence in Hitchcock, mm -hmm. but all right, how far do I need to show it? You know, yeah, it's much. I can I can convey that there is violence going on without actually showing you. You know, that's where Soderbergh is so good. Is he knows what he wants? He knows what he needs, and some of that's experience. So if you've if you've done filmmaking enough, you're worried. You're no longer worried so much about like, I need to film everything. No, no, no. You know what you need to film beforehand. Mm -hmm. You know, you got a notebook full of questions. Imagine just coming in here and not having any questions like, well, I'll figure, I'll find these questions as I go. I'm sure there would be four hour podcasts just to edit it down. Totally. And I think that it always depends on the, on kind of the relationship 
between, I guess, myself and the guest, right? Like sometimes I have less questions. I actually have a lot less questions for you than I usually do. And what I realized is sometimes I never even get to my questions because that's not the trajectory that the conversation has taken. So all that to say, I do have a question for yeah, you yeah, on here. Absolutely. Do you have any stories maybe from onset that stick out to you? Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, set is your work environment, um, but you're there a lot. And so there's, there's a lot of waiting around. And so there's a lot of practical jokes which happen. Um, and so one that I really like that is really funny is I was um, doubling Kevin Bacon on this TV show called The Following. And he's playing a cop who has had heart surgery and he you know has all this makeup that's on his chest and so i've been doubling him uh for a while and you know he knows where i am he's he's fairly reserved for the most part but over time uh you know all right get somewhat familiar i had shown up for work that day and i was actually doubling somebody else so i had this huge beard on and it's some guy in a shop who who's getting beat up and and gets his head smashed down on a, a soldering table and then they like start lighting his beard on fire so i'm doubling this guy who's gonna get beat up and get his beard lit on fire and i'm done with the day so i've already finished my stunt and kevin uh who i'm not doubling that day but i'm his regular double is getting ready to do this like bedroom scene you know, so he's going to be shirtless. So he's in, in the trailer. He's like laying back and they're like putting these scars all over his chest and body of like open heart surgery and being stabbed and being shot and all these sorts of things. Because that's what his character is. That's what his character is. Okay. And so I'm in, I'm, and I'm going in there to get this beard taken that's been glued onto my face. Uh, and I come in there. Oh, Hey, Hey Peter, how's it going? He's like, wait, what are you, what are you doing? I was like, Oh, I'm, I'm just getting ready for your scene after you're done with this. Um, we're going to test out some stunt stuff. And he was like, my scene? What? I have to wear a beard? What am I doing? And he like leaped out to get his his uh, his folder. Like, which scene is it? And I was like, I'm just kidding, Kevin. And he was like, oh, oh thank God. So, uh, you know, when you get comfortable enough where you can kind of joke like that, I think that that's, that's really fun. Uh, and I also like hearing these human moments right like he's kevin bacon yeah yeah right like he's a huge big star yeah and so when you get to hear him talk about you know oh, i couldn't sleep last night i like open the window it's too cold i close the window it's too hot and you know any other place on the planet if you couldn't control the temperature in your apartment you would you would you'd be like this is bullshit like <laughs> i'm not I'm not paying, you know, $4,000 a month to not be able to control my, yeah, you know, my thermostat. But for some reason in New York, we all just accept it. And like, <laughs> it just brings me a little comfort knowing like, oh, Kevin Bacon also can't control the temperature in the apartment. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Yeah. It, yeah. it, it kind of puts us all on an even keel, right? Yeah. Right. Like, oh, okay. You're, you're human. Yeah. <laughs> you know? The grass isn't so much greener on the other side. No, no, uh, -uh not at all. It, you know, <laughs> they just have more of the grass. It's all the same color. <laughs> they just have more grass. <laughs> that's it, that's it. More grass. So, what is your relationship with the person you're doing stunts for? 
do you study how that person moves and then kind of translate that to a stunt? Oh, interesting. Um, most of my work, I'm, I'm a double. So um, I, I am tall and skinny and uh, I have a very malleable look. And so I look like a lot of people. And when I show up as a double, I am, I am watching the actor for what are their individual mannerisms mm -hmm. that is bleeding into their character. And then I'm watching them on set do their performances to try and get an understanding of uh, what they're trying to convey. And then for me, I see my position as a double uh, as being a tool for the actor to convey the story. So I had uh, I was working on this movie where uh, I'm getting I get off this motorcycle, I come up, I bust the window of this car, and then I'm jumping in into the car. They pull out. I'm like halfway in, halfway out, and then I get thrown from the vehicle. And I like land on the ground. I think I know what movie this is. Oh yeah, is it John Wick? Nope, it's not. No, what is it? No, it's a. Uh, was it the Ultimate Playlist of Noise? Oh no, I don't know what that yeah. is. Yeah, it's a it's a new movie. It's well, out. I tried. Yeah, it's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I wish I had such a sweet stunt in John Wick. Um, so when I turn to my actor, I you know no one's going to be mad at me if if I don't consult my actor when I fall down, mm -hmm. uh, I say it, it's like running for cover. So when I get thrown from the vehicle, I try and hide my face because as soon as they see that it's my face instead of the actor's face, that that shot doesn't work anymore um, or they have to cut around it. Uh, so a lot of times stunt people will fall down and they'll like cover up or they'll hide. Uh, and, and that's fine. That's totally adequate. I like asking my actor, all right, you can let me decide, but this is your character. Mm -hmm. Do you want him to, to get up and, and start running like it's not a problem? Do you want him to get up and fall over like it was a problem? Do you want him to stumble? Can he not get up? Is he knocked out? Like These are performance choices that no one's really going to be mad at me if I do it. Well, and also their but character. It's his character. Exactly, that they've been studying and curating. Mm -hmm. So they're trying to play a character, and I'm trying to play this other guy playing his character. Mm -hmm. So this is a choice for them. You're consulting them about something yeah. that they're, they're the professional of. Absolutely. And so that's, at least that's what I'm trying to do. Not, you know, some people do, some people don't. Um, and so that's where I use. Uh, personally, I use things like uh, movement styles called like viewpoints is what I use a lot of. So viewpoints is, I got it out of City Company, which is a company out of New York. Um, and Anne Bogart made viewpoints, but she got it from Mary Overland, who is a modern dancer. Okay. And all it is, is a descriptive term of movement. So... Um, is there a repetition? Uh, are you making shape? Are you using architecture like the walls? Um, is, you know, size, floor pattern, kinesthetic response. These are descriptive terms in which we can describe the process of our movement between us. And most of the actors that I'm going to double have 
gone through some sort of training and they've probably run into this. Mm -hmm. And it's a way for us to communicate how you want this movement without having to demonstrate or use really broad terms like, well, can you, you know, I don't know, like, can you be more alpha? Like, <laughs> yeah. okay, what does that mean? Like, It's more got, of a formula. Well, it's like a, uh, it's a specific descriptive term, right? Okay. So it, um, it's like using verbs instead of adverbs. Okay. Right. So that, that we can try and narrow, narrow down what you're looking for because the, the biggest thing about trying to get this information, if we were there for a week, it wouldn't really matter, but we got four hours to shoot this mm -hmm. and, uh, every set breaks down their budget down to, uh, you know, cost per hour, cost per minute. And it's really expensive. So being able to communicate effectively to maximize your time uh, is really important. So I, I really try and not wear out my actor by being confusing and just try and get what they need in what they want specifically. Have you found that understanding movement helps you kind of understand human psychology at all? Oh, constantly. It the degree that I got from the University of Alaska in in performance is the most useful degree. I, I use it every day. I've gotten uh, a lot of work out of it, both in performance and not in performance. Um, it's a it's a skill that just gets honed. So it works in negotiations. It works in you know. Being able to understand intentions of people in the bar, mm -hmm. or, you know, hey, is this guy going to be threatening to me or is this guy, you know, oh, is that person flirting with me? Oh, this, you know, this person that I'm trying to convince, give me a job, mm -hmm. it, it, you know, their breathing is matching mine. Oh, we're in sync. Excellent. You know. That happens. Absolutely. Yeah. You pay, really? You know, you just start paying attention uh, to these universal things, right? Like everything that I'm portraying on film is a representation of real life. It's heightened, but it's a representation of what's going on around us. Yeah. Uh, and if you're not relating to it, then it's probably not relatable. But if you're relating to it, then that means that you see something that you see in your regular life. Mm -hmm. so. Do you think that that calms you? Like when you, when you recognize somebody in a meeting and say they sync breathing with you, right? Just unconsciously, are you like, okay, we're simpatico right now? Like we're we're kind of on the same wavelength. It's something that I definitely try and, you know, I try and pay attention, right? Like you want to, you know, just like right now, you're you're looking at me and you're like, okay, I'm nodding my head, and okay, and you're being thoughtful with your intentions and and looking at me in the eyes mm -hmm. and and focusing. Okay, I have this person's attention; they are present with me. Uh, you know, we all kind of pay attention to that, but you know, the, um, the guy who's the professional pit pocket is going to, you know, as he's walking next to you, he's going to know more about where your valuables are in your pocket just by observing more. Yeah. So I, as a movement person, am going to, oh, okay. Like I'm going to pay attention to, oh, that person I think has some sort of injury in their hip or their ankle mm -hmm. because of X, Y, or Z, um, you know, because of a limp or because of how they're carrying themselves or they're heavy footed on one side. Uh, and then when, you know, 
most communication is nonverbal. Yeah. So, you know, that that's what I'm utilizing. But with this degree in other places, uh, so I'm always shocked about how this degree helps me. So for a while, I would come and work for the public defender's office in Alaska. And I was helping the public defender's office with jury selection and opening and closing statements. Oh, that's great. Absolutely. And so I don't have to think, you know, I don't have to worry about their legal uh, So would you do like consulting? Basis. Like, oh, I wouldn't pick that person because they're not going to be a good fit for this case or something like that. I mean, I, I that's not what they had hired me for. Okay. But okay. like I would and I um, I spoke to some other lawyers in town and whether or not that's valuable. And they, oh, yeah, they, they, there's some consultants in town. And, okay, I see. Um, but I am not a lawyer. Yeah, yeah. So they, you know, they're probably going to want somebody more with yeah. the, a law. But they kept hiring me back because- you know, I could look at somebody and and be like, "Hey, man, like, is this the clothes that you're gonna wear? Like, you're gonna be a <laughs> public defender out in King Salmon, and you are in a you know a sweater vest, and you know you have bifocals, and so I see that you're keeping your glasses on your nose. Yeah, yeah. And you're looking down at the page that you're holding in front of you, and then looking over your glasses to talk to the jury. You're looking down your nose at us. Yeah, yeah." Go buy yourself some extra tufts and get rid of your suit because that's, you know, you're conveying yourself as not being from here and really condescending. Yeah, you need to be approachable. Absolutely. Or, you know, I I remember this one. I felt felt really it was it was amazing. I was I was really like the public defender who supported me in this. But I remember this woman, she came up, she's a lawyer, she did a great uh, opening statement. It was awesome. But I was like, oh, hi. Uh, they asked me what I thought. And I said, is this the clothing and jewelry you're going to wear? And she was like, wait, I thought we were doing our opening. Service. Is this the clothing and jewelry you're going to wear? Yeah, I don't see what the problem is. I was like, your plunging neckline and your long necklace that is disappearing into your cleavage, I'm paying more attention to your breasts than I am to what you're saying your movements and standing in front of the jury and how you're projecting yourself on how you're carrying is not helping you with what you are trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. I definitely want to pay attention to you. I just don't care what you're saying. But you need to be the conduit for that information yeah, rather than kind of a piece of performance. Well, you are always performing, right? Like yeah, yeah. It, all of this is about impressions. I mean, that's what I have written down right here as you were talking. Um, looking at life uh, through your lens, you know, just your perspective, it seems like life is a performance. Yeah. I, I mean, life is always about telling it. You're always like bleeding information, mm -hmm. right? So as we're walking down the street, everybody is projecting something. Everybody's telling a story. Mm -hmm. Not everybody's performing. So the performance is uh, being able to shift how you're telling this story. And that's that's the artistry of it. Um, but everybody is telling their story, right? Like you and I, when we walked in here, we're both telling a story. Neither one of us was performing. Mm -hmm. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so that's, uh, you know, being mindful of that it's in the same way that um, I had an ex whose family member were painters and they would talk about 
color as they walked around in a way that I just didn't realize that that was what was being conveyed mm -hmm. with those colors, you know? So what makes you nervous to do a stunt? Um, the things that make me nervous to do a stunt are, you know, well, one, nobody wants to fuck it up, right? Like, yeah, I am, I am hired by the day or by the contract, right? Like, so we are, we are problem solvers and a specialized tool in the film business, you know, that get that doesn't get utilized all the time, but when you need it, that's where it is. But because you're hired by the day and that I don't have a regular job, I'm not going to be here tomorrow. When I show up for work, all right, my paycheck for today is fine, but I need to give a good showing today so that I get hired for tomorrow. Okay. Okay. So a lot of, a lot of the nerves that come from being, uh, from doing stunts is making sure that your gag is is going off well, or if it doesn't go off well, that it that it doesn't fall on on your head. You know, they shouldn't be waiting on you. Are you prepped and ready to go? Have you thought about the safety factors? Um, did your stunt or your behavior detract from how set was operating today? And then there's beyond that, there's also, well, this is really nerve wracking because this could potentially be dangerous yeah. or part of this stunt is kind of outside of our hands. And it's, you know, like mm, we got an actor swinging something at a stunt person, mm -hmm. you know, oh, he just punched that guy in the face. Like. Yeah, you know, yeah. It, it's the unknowns that potentially could happen. You just don't want to give, you want everything to go out with, go off without a hitch. Off the top of your head, what do you think is probably the most high risk stunt that you've done? That, that I've done or that I've kind of been a part of safety wise? Yeah. I mean, either one really. Um, I mean, safety wise, I've been a part of some stunts in which we have some, you know, famous actors who are not in a lot of danger, but the risk is high because if something does happen, that shuts down production. Mm -hmm. um, and so putting Keanu Reeves on a, on a horse in a harness for him to to do like wild west horse tricks while fighting guys on motorcycles while driving down the street <laughs> is is complicated and risky because if he gets hurt production stops that's hundreds of people that are out of work until he is well or he is better and all the scheduled productions and times and locations that we had are now uh, need to be rescheduled. And that's a lot of resources mm -hmm. um, kind of just being lost. Uh, and so even though the likelihood of injury is, is bad, the, the risk of that is, is there. And that, that's when things get really nervous. It makes, makes you even more nervous because it's not you. Yeah. If I'm the one who's getting hit by a car, um, at least it's all on me, right? Like, 
don't you have to can, worry you about it. You can just be them. out and there can be another I mean, stuntman in. Absolutely. Okay. Um, but you can't do that with with celebrities. Hey, we need your face and we yeah. need it in in well, not yet. Property. With these deep fakes, we might be able to yeah. do it soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but even that, like in the Irishman, you can tell. I mean, you just yeah, you can you tell know. a little bit. They have that new movie coming out with James Dean in it. That mm. they're they're gonna this. I would assume just deep fake the whole movie. Awesome. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's. I mean, that's. That's great. Is you know, you can't do half a flip. So if you're gonna. Deep fake them. Get yourself a, an agile person and just. Change the look, change the face, uh, yeah. as opposed to, I mean, we're kind of insinuating to the Irishman yeah, yeah, at the yeah. moment, uh, you know, but the Irishman, they need, you know, they used a, a very old guy who is very spry for a 70-year-old guy, but he's not moving like the 30-year-old who's supposed to be jumping back into the car. Totally. There was that um, that short documentary that's on Netflix where they talk about that, mm-hmm. where, was it uh, Al Pacino? Um, and he stands up at one point, uh, and he's like, was that, was that about 50? Am I 50 years old yet? You know? So every time he stood up, he was like trying to do it faster and faster and try to do it younger and younger. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, seemed like they were aware of it. Let's see. So you told me about the, the technical scariness, you mm-hmm. know, uh, of a stunt. What about to your own bodily, like harm? Oh, f- well... I mean, some of that does, I don't know if scary is the right word, but it, it uh, I definitely, I definitely have like sat in the bush before I had to run out in front of a Buick at 20 miles an hour to get hit by it and just been like, Waldo, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> like, like, this is the dumbest thing you can do. Why are you doing this? Um, and you got to kind of talk yourself into it and at least for me i in my thought process is i i practice getting myself to the point of no return on those types of stunts mm-hmm. right so j- jumping off a barge or getting hit by a car or doing a high fall or a dive or like an explosion or something you know something that's big and dramatic yeah um that's kind of happening to me rather than me doing something uh i get myself to the point of no return so i I practice getting myself in front of the car uh how many steps did it take did i make sure that my weight's on the right foot so when the car hits me it tips me as opposed to um as opposed to breaking my leg or like twisting me poorly and i get myself to the point where i can't get away and then i just all right i don't have to think about anything after that it's just going to happen yeah yeah i only had to i only have to get myself to step off of the boat like gravity's going to make sure that i get yeah, into the yeah. water it's in god's hands now yeah exactly exactly <laughs> um you know but that's very different than uh i am swinging a 40 pound sharpened metal scythe at a performer's head mm-hmm. and if they don't get out of the way they're going to get hit in the face. Those are the ones that you're more scared about. Absolutely. Because it's, you know, I'm in control of that. Somebody else is in danger and I'm in control of it. Mm-hmm. Right. If, uh, that's where, you know, you get really nervous. Uh, I don't, you don't have any kids. No. But from when I talk to parents, like 
Ah, they're not really so nervous when they do stuff, but like they're kids. Oh my gosh, I'm so nervous about them doing it because I'm I have no control over this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm just watching it go down. So your um, fellow somebody performers else is it, yeah. are your your kids. Yeah, well, <laughs> in some way, yeah. Uh, it's definitely what I hear from the stunt coordinators. Um, they, you know, they hate monitoring it, and it's so much more stressful mm-hmm. um, because. You're not the one doing it. Right? Well, they're the amateurs, right? Like they're- Well, well they, like, they're the less experienced. Yeah, there we go. But the other thing is like, who's responsible? If I get hurt, okay, I got to live with being hurt. If I hurt somebody else, I have to live that I hurt somebody else. Yeah, yeah. And in some of these cases, you know, hurting somebody else could mean the end of their career. And, and you don't even know that that's happened. Mm-hmm. And and the public doesn't get to know that's happening because it's kept very quiet, uh, you know. So, bridesmaids has a scene in which they're on a ski do and they come up to the beach and then she flies off and and kind of face plants. Okay. Okay. Well, that stunt woman broke her neck. No way. And she probably. Um, won't get to do stunts anymore because of this. Now, you know, there's all sorts of questions on whose fault is it or whether, and that's a big deal. But the point is, is somebody got really hurt doing that. Yeah. And, um, you know, this as a team is here to make it, make it safe to, to make a comedy funny movie. And if you had a part in which somebody who can no longer do their art form because, it just went wrong. Sometimes it's just tragedy and, and there's no way around it. And sometimes there's planning that you try and mitigate a bunch and you can get it down to like 0.01%. Mm-hmm. You know, but this is this is our, our job. But that's what really makes it scary is knowing that some of those consequences are, uh, are on the line, which is why we spend so much time trying to fix it in pre and in rehearsals before you get to set. Yeah. Um, so that everybody can do, uh, everybody can come back again tomorrow. That's interesting because the general public will view a movie, say like Bridesmaids, and they have a special place in their heart, you know, for it because they love that movie. But maybe the people that were actually a part of it were like, oh, that that poor stunt woman like broke her neck. You know, there there's this kind of undercover story with it in the same way that, you know, you have that movie The Crow mm-hmm. uh, and Brandon Lee, he died. Yeah. He died on the set of that movie. So there's kind of like a pockmark on that movie. So it can't just be the movie anymore. It's always going to be viewed in relation to Brandon Lee's death. Do you think that's unique to film and television? Or do you think that's kind of the same for all art, right? Yeah, I think in the best case scenario, you know, everything kind of happens and no one gets hurt, right? Yeah, but... um Beethoven's last symphony when he didn't he do it when he was deaf like do we hold a different place in it knowing that Beethoven wrote this when he was deaf mm-hmm. you know because of the things that were surrounding the creation of that is there you know uh the message that's being said or well they commissioned this art piece I wish I knew more about art to be able to like pick somebody out yeah. really good for it but <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah oh they Michelangelo painted the Sistine Chapel to get his 
father out of debt, you know? Does that affect the actual piece of art? Does yeah. that does that belittle it? Well, does it belittle it or does it just change your opinion on it? You Maybe know? it just adds to the story, you know? Well, would Tears in Heaven be such a good song by Eric Clapton if we didn't know that he wrote it about his son falling out of a window and so dying? So here's the thing is I don't know when that information was released. So was the was the song released and then people were like, oh, this is a great song. And then you kind of have the backstory because that happens a lot, right? Where you watch the documentary or whatever mm-hmm. about the movie or the piece of art or whatever. And then you like it that much more because of that. Oh, well, absolutely. Well, I mean, yeah, so yeah. then the question is, is how do you feel about Bridesmaids now knowing that somebody got hurt on it? Yeah, yeah. Where my mind goes is I am sure you sign a lot of paperwork as a stuntman and you assume the responsibility of being that person. And these are the things that can potentially happen. And so if, or when they happen, you don't feel like you've been slighted. You know, it's like, these were the risks. I mean, this is our job and uh, stunt performers are a member of SAG-AFTRA. Okay. And so they are part of a union. And and so we have the same union pr- protections that any of the other principal performers have uh, when you're on set. And and so there are risks uh, that come along with that. Um, and you accept those risks, but in the same way that the uh, high voltage lineman accepts the risks that he's going to be working around electricity. Totally, yeah. Or a firefighter accepts the risk that he's going to be working around fire. Mm-hmm. If if whatever happened in their training, something goes sideways and they are injured, I would as- assume that they are going to feel similarly to the way that stunt performers are when they're injured on the job as mm-hmm. well. They're going to they're going to turn to their employers, their union and their community of, you know, hey, I was hurt on the job and, you know, I'd like to use my medical to, you know, I I want this to not affect my future employment. I want to make sure that um, I'm taken care of and can heal well and then return to work. Mm -hmm. Um, It would be a real hard profession if like, it was like one shot and all right, like didn't make it and we're just going to accept that and move on to another career. What I'm kind of getting here is that this job, like any other job, you know, it has those benefits and pitfalls. Mm-hmm. So uh, you had mentioned when we were talking about being nervous about stunts and you said you're in, in the bushes, right? And you're, you're, you have to jump in front of the Buick and you're kind of talking to yourself, kind of talking yourself through it. Do you have a, a mantra or anything like that that you, that you say to yourself before doing a stunt? Um. It somewhat depends on if you're doing it with somebody else. If you're doing it with somebody else, then you're going to kind of talk through it with them and make sure you're both ready. If it's just me, I, you know, I usually talk myself into what I'm doing. So I let myself know, okay, you know, all right, when they say action, I'm jumping off this boat, Mm -hmm. you know, and for me, I just kind of say it out loud, but for a mantra, like, I'm really lucky. The best thing is, is I don't have to. Uh, they do a mantra for me right before we go. Three, two, one, action. Like, okay, I don't have to think. I just, as soon as they say action, I'm going. Yeah. Right? So I don't have to, somebody else is calling that out for me. Even even to the point where, I can't remember, I think it was 
jumping off a cliff, like into the water, uh, you know, somewhere like going swimming or something with some people and like, okay, I got to jump off this cliff. And it's, you know, it's high. I'm not, you know, yeah, like 40 feet. That's still 40 feet. You're jumping. For sure. Yeah. So it's scary. But I'm not on set. This is just for fun. Mm-hmm. But I still turn to my friend and say, hey, look, just just say three, two, one action or three, two, one, go. I'm like what? I'm like just <laughs> it makes it easier for me because I won't compel myself to go. But, you know, oh, you hired me to do this. That's the job. That's the job. So yeah. three, two, one action is like is like the Pavlov's dog bell. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. okay, you, you run the bell and, and the dog salivate. You say three, two, one action and I'm going to go on whatever I'm planning on doing. Oh man, that's great. Yeah, so, it, it definitely helps. So do you often do that with your friends? Like whenever you guys are going to do like say a rope swing or whatever, like can you kind of give me a countdown? Three, two, one? Yeah, if it's a, um, I mean, it's all in perspective. So when I was earlier in my career where I hadn't done so many larger gags, then yeah, I would have to do that for for other things. As I've gotten further in my career, I need less of that or it has to be a more intense experience for me to need that kind of push. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like you are an adrenaline junkie? Like, No, not at all. Not at all. Okay. Not at all. Uh, I, we try and work out all the kinks it, so that it's not that. It's not daredevil. We're not trying to um, do things that are dangerous. We're trying to remove as much of the danger as possible Mm -hmm. so that you can redo it over and over. Um, There's a a famous uh, stunt, well, stunt performer, stunt coordinator, and now second unit director. Um, His last name is Armstrong. He's you may not know who he is, but you're a fan of his work. Yeah. For sure. Superman and Indiana Jones, all that sort of stuff. James Bond. Uh, but he talks about it's not a stunt unless you can repeat it. Huh. Right? Like, otherwise, you're just a daredevil doing it. Yeah. It's got to be repeatable. If you can only do the stunt once and then you broke your legs, it's not really a stunt. Uh, and I talk about, hey, our job is to thread the needle. Like you need to be able to do that every time. So how many times can you fall backwards down a flight of stairs? If you can only do it once or twice and then you're just too hurt or, well, I fell on my right side this time. So now I can't do it. Now I got to fall on my left side. Like, yeah. you're, you're not really doing a stunt. You're just filming yourself being thrown down a flight of stairs. Which is something that I actually think about pretty often when I watch movies and I see people falling downstairs. I'm like, that's that's got to hurt. Yeah. I mean, there are some parts of the job that like, yep, that one's that one's going to be a thumper and that one's going to just hurt. Uh, and, you know, on that uh, ultimate playlist of noise, um, uh-huh. one of the guys is, okay, I got to fall. They call it a flat back. I have to fall and land on my back. Okay. Well, I know that this is going to be painful and I know that this is going to be jarring and I may get the wind knocked out of me. I can protect my head every time. Now I can do it safely, but it may not look so good. Um, And I may have to do it four or five times, but you know what? If I just kick my legs out (laughs) and I get myself horizontal so that I'm standing and then I put my legs straight out so that I'm like four and a half, five feet off the ground and I land on my back, they're going to get the shot that they need. 
So I did that. Oh man, that looked great, blah, blah, blah. Um, in this particular case that I'm talking about, he said, yeah, it looked great. Like he showed me the video that he took with his camera, but then we looked at it on the monitor. Mm -hmm. And that's the lesson of, oh man, that was a thumper. That's the proper way to do a flat back under normal circumstances, except neither one of us saw the frame that they had changed it to. So instead of doing a big wide where you could see my legs going up, like was in his camera, which is exactly what I was supposed to do if that was the angle that we needed. Okay. They had a tight on the ground of where I was going to fall. So they missed me going five feet in the air and they yeah. only caught the last three inches. So you jumped above the frame. I mean, they saw me fall, but okay. what it means is if we were to film this normally, yeah. I had to be there to get the shot that I needed. Hey, sell out right now because we're getting this shot. Okay. Well, at the last minute, they changed the, the frame so that it's not shooting my whole body. Mm -hmm. It's just shooting the impact on the ground. So it just had me quickly smashing onto the ground really fast. I don't know. So Not, you had to do it again. I had to do it again. <laughs> but this time, because of the frame, whereas normally that you know, larger aim where, okay, this is just the thumper. You're going to just take the damage and we only have to do it once. And that's going to be less damage than doing it five or six times. You know, you can't do half a flip. You can only do a whole flip or not at all. So sell out. Oh, wait, they changed the camera angle. Now we don't need a flip. Now we just need that last bit of it. So the second time, instead of going five feet in the air, I dropped five inches. And that's not a thumper. Not a thumper. Right? So these are the knowing what you're doing and trying to take away as much uh, risk as you can. Yeah. And knowing when is the time in which you're going to have to have risk. If you're getting hit by a car, you can reduce a lot of the injuries by changing the speed of the car, making sure you hit the windshield square so that the windshield breaks, making sure that you're padded up correctly. Um, uh, staying on the car as opposed to falling off the car. Like there's a lot of little tricks that can be done for that. But in the end, it's still a two-ton car that's hitting a 150-pound human. For sure. There's going to be a risk that's part of it. If you're going to roll a car over, we can do a lot to make sure that the odds are in your favor that you're going to be fine. Do you ever mess with your friends? Like say you're out and about and... I don't know, pretend to get hit by a car or because you know how to do it. You know, you know how to do these stunts. Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, oh my God, are you okay, Waldo? <laughs> uh, you know, not normally. Um, there's another stuntman named Dave Shumbers, and he does the double for Dean, who does mayhem. You know, I'm your rusted out water heater. Okay, yeah, and yeah. So he's that guy. So he he's a legit stuntman who's doing all sorts of crazy awesome stunts yeah but him and i both talk about who's a stuntman like you're on set and they'll be like all right stunts you're up and you like look around like oh you're talking about me oh i'm a stuntman oh yeah yeah oh shit i'm a stuntman like how ridiculous is that that's so crazy to even think about so when i'm out with my friends i usually am you know, I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to pretend, you know, it's part of my job. It's a little work and it doesn't, you know, 
I try and set that aside when I'm hanging out with my friends. It, it feels like a weird coat to walk around with all the time. Yeah. It's not that I haven't done, done things like that. There is a, um, there's a thing that we have that's called a kick strap. And so, uh, it's a, it's a piece of nylon that, uh, nylon webbing that kind of goes over your feet and then runs up into your pant leg and down to your other foot. Okay. And it, so it, it's up in your, up in your pants and it, and it, and it goes through your pant legs. And when it's fully tight, it, it doesn't touch your body, but it's still in your pants. So what we use these for is we can do a groin kick. So somebody can kick in between your legs okay. and your, your nylon strap, you know, it can take 5,000 pounds. And so it never allows their foot to actually make contact with you because those straps are attached to your feet. And we're talking about like getting kicked in the nuts. Yeah, we're getting kicked in the nuts. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, their pants are moving, so it's within half an inch. Yeah, yeah. It's never touching you, but it definitely looks like it. I've always wondered that. I've always, I mean, like when I watch movies, I'm like, that person didn't really just get kicked in the nuts. Well, so if if, if it's of a certain angle, this is one way in which we could hide that. And there has definitely been stunt people where we will fake Rochambeau each other for who's buying drinks at the bar yeah. and just pretend to kick each other in the nuts because yeah. we're just being ridiculous <laughs> and unprofessional. <laughs> um, you know, but how to hide all these things, like these are all the, the, the tricks, right? So that's one way to get a contact. Another one is to kick the inside of the thigh. Another one is to change the camera angle so that it, you're never actually even close to kicking them. Mm-hmm. That's great. Yeah. I kind of want one of these things. Oh, well, we can make one. It's probably 10 bucks. Oh, really? Not, yeah, it's not very much at all. Oh, man. I can that's teach awesome. you how to make one. That'd be great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so is there a, uh, a general life expectancy for a career like being a stuntman, uh, like there is in sports? Um, there are people that have been doing it for a long time and there is definitely a upward trajectory um a friend of mine named norman howell started when he was nine and i don't know uh, a nine-year-old stuntman that's awesome well he started out stunt boy yeah i mean technically you can't be under 18 but he he was in this movie called the cowboys with john wayne okay and they needed kids who could ride horses and since he was a cowboy uh and doing rodeos he could ride horses and that's where he started his stunt career was being an actor who needed to have these special skills and now he's i mean he started out with john wayne so he's you know getting up there in age yeah yeah and um his career is still going because he's um, you know, he stunt doubled in Dances with Wolves for Kevin Costner. He's now stunt coordinating uh, Brooklyn Nine Nine. Um, he did the pilot for MacGyver, uh, and, you know, and so he's moved beyond doing stunts into coordinating stunts. Okay, okay. But that being said, there are still uh, Steve Mack, who is in New York. His first jobs were when he was eighteen on the Dukes of Hazards. He's in his late 60s. He's still doing stunts. I've seen him hit the ground. He does lots of driving stunts. He's amazing. He's got more rollovers and car jumps than anybody in New York. 
Uh, and there was just, was I think Lone Ranger that they did a while ago. They had a, I mean, he was like 87, like a guy who could barely walk like super, you know, prestigious stuntman. And he's in his eighties laying down horses. Jeez. Oh yeah. And I wasn't there for this, but they were like, oh yeah, man, he fell off his horse. And like in his mid eighties. Just and, eating shit. Absolutely. Yeah. And he got up and like wrestled his horse and got back on it and went and did it again. Like no one's gonna give him a car hit. Yeah. But he's still going, he's still hitting the ground. He's still wearing pads and falling on concrete. And so if you play the game right, I mean you can do it for as long as you want. Yeah. Uh you know, they they're just redoing Picard. Okay, well, somebody has to double, you know. Patrick Stewart. Yeah. 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 Somebody's got to double him and he's getting older up there and it'll probably be younger than, than what he is, but somebody has to, has to do that. Or, Hey, look, we need, you know, we need an old lady to fall over a shopping cart. Like, so the field will narrow yeah. into their onset performances but maybe they'll get an expertise in something else. So Steve Mack stays in his job because he's a driver. Mm -hmm. So he's doing stunt driving. Maybe he's not doing T-bone crashes anymore, but he's definitely doing reverse 180s. Just stomping it. Yeah. That's awesome. That's yeah. really great. You stay relevant in your career for the amount of problems that you can solve. When you look toward the future, is that what you're kind of aiming for? To just continue being in it or would you like to be like a stunt coordinator? I like the idea of being a stunt coordinator. I don't know if I'm there yet. I mean, I'm only 12 years in. Yeah. Um, but I like the idea of stunt coordinating because it reminds me of doing expedition work. It's a one-time project. Can you figure out the logistics for this one moment to get this one project done? And that really appeals to me. Um, and... Uh, I like, I like the art form of movement and collaborating. And so I see myself continuing to try and, you know, leverage my art form, uh, and, and keep taking part in new projects, no matter what they are, whether, you know, it's film and television, which is where I've found this niche within, uh, in stunts or uh, also theater, uh, working with live theater or shows and even working with businesses who, you know, are trying to figure out how to augment what they want to do and, and they need some help um, either artistically, movement-wise or uh, business-wise in, in kind of like how they're showcasing themselves. Mm -hmm. You mentioned... Expedition work. We've been talking a lot about stunts. Mm -hmm. Can you explain a little bit of uh, your expedition work with your family? Oh, yeah. Um, so my mother founded a company called Circumpolar Expeditions, and my mother is an Arctic explorer. And so since I was a little kid, she worked in travel, and then um, she actually worked at Mark Air for a while, which was like an Alaskan-based airline mm -hmm. back in the day and then she started her own company and she does custom expeditions uh all over the world but specializing in the arctic and so that these are not that trips can't be redone but these are like 
one-off trips. Like mm-hmm. we help some people swim from Asia or North America. Swim? Swim. Oh my gosh. Um, How do you do that? I mean, are you in a boat and just kind of like keeping an eye on them or what? Well, in this particular case, it's about the logistics of, you know, do we have a boat? Do we have a safety swimmer? Do we have a medic? Uh, do we have evacuation plans? Uh, have we organized with the villages that we're going to be in? Have we gotten the visa process? Have we informed the State Department and Russia's equivalent to the State Department? Um, you know, it's the, a production. Absolutely, it's yeah. a, but it's a one-time production, which is why I I find it so much like film. Yeah, right? like we don't need to reshoot. The scene, we just need to do it once on the capital steps. Yeah. So it's not a stunt because it's only being done once. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, exactly. Yes, that's very true. Um, but it's similar in that we're here to do this one project. For sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And everyone's working together for a common goal. Exactly. And yeah. then once that goal is completed, great. And then we put that away. Um, yeah. So I, I, I grew up doing that. Uh, my mom became a member of the Explorers Club and, you know- which you just became a member of, right? I did. Yeah. I did. Our uh, friend Whitney Branshaw told me. So the Explorers Club and being inducted into that, um, I got my mother into it as a gift. She didn't. Um, she'd never really applied to it, but she always kind of her dream to do it. Um, and she had worked with Mead Treadwell, who was lieutenant governor at the time. He's not anymore. Um, and then also this gentleman who's the head of the Leaky Foundation to prove that ancient man could have sailed from Russia to North America as opposed to walking across the Bering Strait. And so they made recommendation. I I convinced them to give recommendations to my mother. And then through that process and getting her in, um, Mead specifically was like, you need to apply. Mm -hmm. Um, and he bugged me about it for a couple of years. And so I uh, asked him for a letter of recommendation and I asked Tandy for one, my mother. And then I got accepted for the expeditions that work I did with my family. And so. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm, I'm really proud of it. So what I'm does really it mean being it. inducted into that? Is it a club? Yeah, it's, uh, it's a social club, okay. right? So in the same way that like, the Harvard Club or the Players Club, I see, I see. all these things that we, they're a little out of date, right? Like it's something from 1900s where like, oh, we go to the clubhouse and yeah. we kind of have drinks and do Now it's a lectures. Facebook group. Yeah, it's kind of a Facebook group, but they still have clubhouses and um, and the Explorers Club is, is kind of interesting because all the members of the Apollo mission are part of it. Wow. You know, Hillary's part of it and Amundsen's part of it. Hillary by? Uh, um, Edmund Hillary. Right? Okay. So th- these are famous explorers, people who went to the first to reach the top of Everest, uh, James Cameron for going to the bottom of the ocean, um, Jeff Bezos for his work in uh, uh, space exploration. Uh, Jane Goodall is going to talk at our uh, yearly conference. It, it's all about exploring our world and promoting, you know, science and exploration. Wow. That's really great. Yeah. It's, it's really neat. Do you feel a little starstruck when you meet some of these people? Cause this seems like it comes from more of a personal place. So for me, when I meet, say I'm in journalism now, right? If I meet a journalist, I'm a lot 
less starstruck than I would be if I were to meet like a pro snowboarder that, you know, I looked up to my entire life. Yeah. I get that way, especially around, uh, astronauts. Yeah. Okay. Because, you know, I've uh, been to the moon. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I dream of being in zero gravity and, uh, I originally started out studying, um, space and sciences. And so like, I really like that. I just feel like it's, it's really important what they're doing. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, people know my work to escape their life. Yeah. Uh, these people are doing work to enhance everybody's lives, right? Like the space program is why we have GPS and, you know, why we have Velcro and why we have EKGs and- Doesn't duct tape have to do with space? Yeah, you know, yeah. every, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. the space program provides so much technology for us. Most of our medical technology, all that sort of stuff. And so being around them is like, oh my God, you guys are contributing to- real progress yeah um you know it it's very nice that you love special victims unit but it's it is not providing to humanity the same way that you know jane goodall uh in understanding of of uh anthropology of chimps versus you know ancient man so you've met astronauts mm-hmm what was that interaction like? Um, were you, you just know, kind of a fanboy, it, or were a, you? Yeah, it's a lot of gushing. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's a lot of you know. I feel like I'd be the same. I'm not calling you out. I'd be the same way. Oh yeah, you know, and you don't want to ask stupid questions about you know about stuff. I, like, I just want to hear them t tell me stories about what it's like on the moon. Yeah, yeah. What you know? Hey, what's it like in zero gravity? What you know? What's a stupid astronaut question? Oh man, I, you know, I mean, it's just, I don't know. It's the same thing that we all would ask, right? Yeah. Like when you work out, what, ha like, what's it like to sweat in space? Or, or yeah, or pee in space. Or, yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, people always go, go to um, that. Has there been, any, like, at the space station, has anybody had an affair just to try sex in space? <laughs> you know, like when you get back to Earth, um, are, are there things in which like, like, oh, I'm used to like having this pen and like I would write something down and then I would just like let go of it and it would say suspended by my notepad against the wall. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the dry erase marker. Like, do you ever find yourself when you get back to earth just letting go of something, expecting it to stay floating and it just comes crashing to the ground? Just a bunch of broken shit <laughs> yeah, in their house. Exactly, right? Like, ex <laughs> exactly. You know, did you accidentally set your coffee cup in space yeah. and it just fell to the ground <laughs> because that's what you were used to in space. Like they've assimilated to space so much that they forgot earth. Oh yeah. That gravity. Yeah. Like, well, that train I was working on, sometimes, you know, I, you would just be like sitting there and then your body would just like lurch in a direction mm -hmm. because you were so used to being on that train so long that you would do things like- Muscle that. memory. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you talked about an expedition with your family where a group was trying to swim like this great distance. Mm -hmm. Maybe let's end this on a another expedition. Oh, that I found that was enjoyable? Or yeah, yeah. Amazing? Just something that, I mean, because that's pretty miraculous to me. I didn't even know something like that existed. Um, okay. Um, I, I like this story that my mom, Tandy, tells. Um, and it 
and it provides a really good lesson for um, business and bureaucracy, which I just I just love, right? Because we are we're all here for a business. Otherwise, you know, this is our our line of work. So there was some they were driving these trucks across Asia. So they were driving from Italy to New York. And as they were driving across the the paperwork uh, for their visas got suspended. Oh, you don't have much time. You have 72 hours and you have to leave the country. And if you can't take the trucks, that's okay. We'll just hold them for you. doesn't mean you're ever going to get them back, but we'll just hold them for you. And so they had to organize planes to come across. So they chartered these two planes that, to fly these three trucks. They cut one of the trucks in half uh, and put them into these planes. And these are some of the oil company planes that are there. Why did they cut it in half? It was just too big? Yeah, because the trucks are too big. Okay. Um, and, uh, and they had to split up. I think they had three trucks and they could only fit one and a half in each plane. Um, and so you're freelance and, and you understand this of, Hey, yeah, keep working on this project. Yeah. Yeah. I know you're supposed to be paid. You can't, you know, we're not like, we can't afford to pay you right now. It's coming. It's coming. It's coming. So the same thing had happened. Oh, we need to get these out of here. We have these, you know, millions of dollars in trucks. Um, you know, it's like, I can't remember which company, like Audi, BMW, one of them who, who had commissioned this thing to drive across. All right, we're going to do it. Okay. But you know, my, my parents' business is freelance. Hey, okay. Well, you're, you're back on your pay. Okay. Well, now the government's going to take your stuff, uh, if you don't get it out of Russia and now you need us to charter these planes. Okay. Well, we figured out how to do it. You don't know how to do it. All right. We need you to wire us the money you owe us now. Otherwise, we're not going to set up this plane. And so like, oh, like, oh, are you holding our stuff hostage? Not at all. We're just not going to work anymore until you until you fix up your bill. We figure out a problem. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're, we get paid for solving problems. Yeah. And we, you know, we now are in a position where, all right, we can choose to continue working or we can, this is a point in which we can stop in which it's a leverage point to get paid. So we got paid for what we need, get back over to the country, which I thought was a very interesting business move because uh, I'm sure you run into this problem. I run into this problem all the time of where people want work from you and then they'll pay you later and then you're chasing them down mm -hmm. for a month to six months mm -hmm. on a project and it's actually more work than the job you did. Yeah. So same deal. So they get these trucks back over the United States and now we're into the other bureaucracy, which I love. So they have to drive these trucks down the hall road, but it's got it's coming from another country. So it's got to go through customs. Mm -hmm. So they fly out a um, agriculture specialist. Um, I can't remember what the government agency is for that. Uh, but make sure that there isn't seeds and fruits and all that sort of stuff coming over. It's Russia. It's the exact same tundra that we got here. It's the same stuff. Yeah. But yeah. so we get on board. Oh, this hasn't been pressure washed. So these can't get off the plane. And there's my mom, Tandy, sitting there. You're kidding, right? No, no, no. You got to pressure. Okay. Well, let's get some buckets. And they like, she went and got buckets and like a hand scrubber and was like, 
hand scrubbing these giant airplane sized trucks. Yeah. And the guy was like, whoa, 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 you can't like, this is what we got. Like, this is the best way to solve this problem. Are you willing to wait here for this? No, 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 no. You can't do that. Like, we're not going to wait. So they hand washed one truck and then they allowed the other trucks to be built and come over. And it was a real, um, it was a real eye-opening experience uh, about if you have the system functions to get what it needs out of it and you are a cog within that. And as long as you are functioning within this apparatus and you know the right levers to pull, you can get what you need. But if you're not at those levers, you know, then you're the one that's getting uh, run over. So. Yeah. We organized this big, amazing miles and miles of, uh, of expedition across in these giant trucks that move so slow that you can crawl at their speed. Okay. Right. You can get it out on your hands and knees and crawl at this four miles an hour that these trucks are going across the tundra because you can't damage the tundra. You have these huge tires. Like up north. Yeah. Up uh, north. On the north slope. You yeah, have the north slope. massive vehicles that transport rigs. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. The, And these are these giant BMW trucks. So, yeah, I don't know if this is a great story. No, I, I know. I, I think it's great. I, uh, what I wrote down right here is I have similar stories that I kind of hold close to me about my parents where it's an exercise in what they're very good at. And it sounds yeah. like this to you is an exercise in something that your mom is brilliant at. Right. So it's it's an exercise in problem solving. And so you were able to watch firsthand your mom solve those problems. And I think that if you if you really kind of just like even extrapolate that to where you are now, you know, one of the things that you keep bringing up is you are a cog in this machine, right? Like you you are you're one variable among this community of people uh with a common goal, right? I yeah. mean that that's been a theme throughout this entire conversation. And I think that that's probably where the importance lies. Yeah, I, I th that is a, a great, a, a much shorter way to kind of get at what I was what I was saying, which is, it's a story that I find is important for, um, to me, uh, of our expedition work, because it's symbolic of the the group dynamic trying to solve a difficult problem there we go and uh that you have very little control over the larger sections of those things um whether that be weather for um you know for an expedition hey we got no control over that uh or government bureaucracy or hey our snow machine broke down um and and those problem solving skills and the ability to communicate with those around you is what made it such a success. I think that's why that story stands out so much in my head, mm -hmm. uh, even though it's not as exciting as like, we're going to look at polar bears, get, you know, get a whale carcass or something like that. But it's, um, uh, it's the dynamic that I find so interesting and the collaboration between this and how, um, you know, the leverage people use on each other trying to try and accomplish goals or resist goals from um, from happening. Hey, we don't got the money to do this, so we can only um, 
film in this location for a short period of time. Mm -hmm. um, well, we really, you know, we really want to use this car. So because we're using this car, we have to fake the wreck because we don't have a second car to actually crash it. Yeah. You know? On this expedition, we really want to go to the furthest east point in Asia and you know so to get there we need to to accomplish this which means we need this permission mm -hmm. that's great and so for me stunts is my job expeditions are a drug and stunts is how i support my habit and and you know tandy my mom got me into that and watching her do her love of exploring and expeditions, you know, she'll go without being paid. But to make it her profession mm -hmm. is watching her navigate that and uh, navigate the bureaucracy and the nuance of negotiating and collaborating with other people trying to accomplish their goal. And that, you know, that's, it's the artistry of that. And that, um, that story represents to me the same skill set that I use in my job now. You know, um, what is the story we're trying to say? And can I convince that gatekeeper stunt coordinator to hire me? And am I appropriate on set? And am I solving those problems for them? Because if I'm not solving those problems, they're not going to keep you around. Mm -hmm. And if you're not following the rules, right? Like, you know, if you just bring the truck over and you just drive it off, like that doesn't work. But like, if you come over and talk to them, all right, well, this, this is what you need. No problem. We're going to start working on that. Um, it's a puzzle. It's a puzzle. Everything's a puzzle. Yeah. Right. And, um, you know, just make sure that in the end, are, are the people that you're working with willing to deal with you again even if you don't give them what you they want there's definitely been a bunch of stunts where it's like oh we want this like can we do this or an expedition we want that can we go here and it's like you know can you even if you don't give them what they want will they still come to you to solve their problems in the future even if you couldn't solve that one mm -hmm. and that's you know that's the business side of artistry uh, whether that be expeditions or or stunts or journalism like you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is, this has been awesome, man. I, um, I think that does it for my questions. Awesome. want to thank you. Oh, for... no, thank you. I'm, I'm a real fan of the podcast. I hope I do it justice. I always like, uh, well, it's always kind of like reassuring, you know, when there's a guest and like, oh yeah, you know, I, uh, I listen to the podcast and I feel like it's been happening more and more often, the more episodes that come out. So thank you oh, for listening. I, oh, absolutely. And it, you know, it's nerve wracking. This is my hometown. Yeah. It feels very strange. And there's a, a bunch of people on the podcast that I knew growing up or went to school with, you know. Well, awesome, dude. Uh, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. For more information about how you can support local grassroots journalism, go to www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. Crude Conversations is written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for Crude Magazine. Music was produced by Alcoda Beats. 